We're in Hebrews chapter 11. If your kids get wiggly, feel free to walk around in the back with them. Hebrews chapter 11. It's on page uh, 1192 in the Pew Bible. And this morning we're reading verses 29 to 31 as our text. Three short verses, but there's a lot packed into it. We'll try to unpack that. Let me just read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 29 to 31. It says, By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Faith wins the victory. The Christian life, make no mistake about it, is a spiritual battle. When you become a Christian, and Christians have recognized this down through the centuries, when you set your face to follow Jesus, you really are putting yourself into opposition against the whole value system and flow and beliefs of the world around you. Uh, living as a Christian in this world really is like riding your bike against the traffic. Uh, and it's, it's challenging. and It's a battle. The, the values of this world, the beliefs of this world, the attitudes are going the opposite direction that Jesus Christ is going. So to follow Christ is a battle. Um, but we, we have confidence in this battle as Christians, not because we're so smart or we're any better than anybody else. We have confidence in this battle because there is already a champion who has won the victory. There is already a hero and a deliverer who has conquered for us, and his name is Jesus Christ. So our confidence as Christians is not in ourselves, but in the Lord that we follow. And so that's why I say faith is the victory. We win the victory in the Christian life by putting our faith in Christ, who has already won the victory for us. Faith is the victory that God will deliver us from all of our trials. When uh, David fought Goliath, David went to Goliath and said, You come with me, at me with a sword and a spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord. It was the Lord who gave him the strength. You know, David didn't, didn't sit around and say, You know, I think I can take this Goliath. You know, look, he's got that helmet. It's riding a little high, and I'm wicked good with a sling. I think I could take it. If I get a perfectly aimed shot, you know, that wasn't his confidence. It wasn't his prowess in battle or his skills. It was just God can do this. God can win the victory. So his confidence was in the Lord and not in himself. And so faith is the key to the victory in the Christian life. And that's what our text is about. Here we are in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, if you're just here for the first time this Sunday, just kind of give you like where we've been. We've been working slowly through the book of Hebrews. We've been in chapter 11 for I think like two months, uh, just slowly working our way through, looking at the different heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. And as we've worked through Hebrews 11, looking at what it means to live by faith, we've been examining different facets of faith. We've seen that by faith we please God. By faith we live as pilgrims in this world and so on and so forth. But today we come to a kind of an interesting facet or dimension of the life of faith. And it's this kind of military imagery that we find here that being a Christian is also a spiritual battle, and it's through faith that we win the victory. So here we have in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 29 to 31, three stories, all of which take place in that period, that 40-year period from when the Israelites left Egypt to when they finally entered the Promised Land. 
And, and all of them show kind of a different slant on this idea that God is our Savior, God is our hero, and we have to trust him to win the victory for us. But, but all sort of from different angles. So what I want to do is, I, the way I'm going to approach this is, I'm going to preach like three mini-sermons. Okay, it's like a triple cheeseburger. You know, there's three... Pat, I shouldn't be giving you that analogy this close to lunch. But there's like three patties, but they're all one burger, Okay. So this is one message. It's about the victory of God and the way we need to trust him. But it's coming at it from three different angles. So I just want to do like three mini-sermons. A mini-sermon on verse 29, a mini-sermon on verse 30, and verse 31. So the first one, let's look at verse 29 together. And if I could summarize sort of the main point there that I think the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate to us, it's this. It's that by faith, God delivers us out of the hands of our enemies. That by faith, God rescues us from those things and those situations that would seek to destroy us in our faith in Christ. So look at this, verse 29. And, and we see that in the story of the Israelites going through the Red Sea. Again, verse 29. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Put a bookmark here. Let's go back and read that original story. It's in the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. should be able to find it. Exodus chapter 14. And to set the context, the Israelites have left Egypt. They're now on their way to the promised land. They're traveling through the desert. But they haven't got much further than the you know, city limits of Egypt when suddenly things go bad. So if you look at Exodus chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back. Back? <laughs> turn back. And camp near Pi-Hahirath between Migdal and the sea. That's the, the Red Sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think, The Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. Now, you just stop right there. You're like, wait a minute, God. You know, what kind of plan is this exactly? Are we trying to get the Israelites out of Egypt? And now you want to send them back. You want it to look like they're confused and entice Pharaoh to come and try to finish them off. You know, it's like you, you just spent all this time saving the Israelites, and now you're sending them back? You know, they're like bait or something. Like, what is this? What is God doing? And the answer, of course, comes at the end of verse 4. God says, I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. See, there's something more important than your and my short-term personal comfort. Believe it or not, there's something more significant. It's the glory of God, which is our long-term joy if we embrace it. But in order for God to gain glory, specifically as the Deliverer who rescues us out of our enemies' hands, He has to create a situation to show that He's the Deliverer. And so often in our lives, God sovereignly leads us to places where we have to trust Him. You know, God, why is this happening to me? Why are you allowing this to take place? I don't understand what you're doing. And we see that God is purposefully creating circumstances of, of pressure 
where we're going to have to really look to him and not to ourselves. You know? And so, so God is, is leading us to these places. And that's what he does here. He sovereignly puts the Israelites in a tight spot where the Egyptians are going to now come after them and they're going to have to really trust God to deliver them from their enemies, not in their own strength. So, verse 5. Sure enough, that's what happens. The king of Egypt was told that the people had fled. Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready, took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them at this new camp as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hiharoth opposite baal Zephon. So here comes Pharaoh now, barreling down, bearing down on the Israelites. And look how they respond, verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and they were, there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. You know, just terror and fear and epic whining and hand-wringing. God, what are you doing? And this is how, you know, that's like a mirror to me because I find that I can so quickly go to that mode when things get tough and, and start whining and doubting and complaining and say, God, I liked it better before. I love what Moses says. Boy, this is a good word. Verse 13. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And I love this line. You need only to be still. Well, that's a good word that we need to hear, isn't it? Man, there are some of us here who are just freaking out right now in our lives. We're, we're so worried about our circumstances. We call ourselves Christians, but we're up at night, tied in knots, full of anxiety, stress, and doubt. And it's like, is God our deliverer or not? We need to be still and wait upon the Lord. Now, when it says be still, you know, that doesn't mean we just become passive and do nothing. I mean, look at the next verse, verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move. So they had to be still by moving. You know, it's kind of funny. But the point of being still is calm down and trust God. Let your heart be still before God. Trust him. He's the deliverer. He's the rescuer of his people. Stop freaking out and trust God. You know, Um We need to be able to say with the psalmist in Psalm chapter 27, verse 1. I love that verse. Psalm 27, 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defender of my life. Whom shall I dread? We shouldn't be afraid. God is with us. He's got our back. He's watching over us. Reminds me of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. I'll just read it. You don't have to turn there. The Apostle Paul says, He's telling the Corinthians, we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. 
So when he was doing his ministry, he was under all these hardships. In fact, it was so bad, he says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. I mean, have you ever been in a situation where you didn't even think you were going to make it out alive? You're just like, I cannot live through this. This is too much pressure. I, I don't have the capacity. My resources are beyond expended. And I can't go on any further by faith. But I love what Paul says. <clears throat> this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, <clears throat> and He will deliver us. He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. We need to trust God and pray. The weapons of the spiritual warfare are prayer and faith. Trusting God to, to deliver and to rescue and to intervene. You know, we're, we so often think of God as kind of a, a last resort. You, you know, it's like the first thing I've got to do is I've got to call my lawyer, then I've got to call my doctor, then I've got to do this test, then I'm going to go right down there to that school and talk to that guidance counselor, and then I'm going to, you know, and, and problems come up and we instantly have our plan of attack. I'm going to make my list, I'm going to do this and this and this and this and this, and, uh, oh, oh yeah, you know, and God help me, please, thank you. And, you know, but that's an afterthought. We treat God like a spotter in weightlifting. I don't know if any of you ever weightlifted, but, uh, you know, you've got to have a spotter sometimes when you do heavy lifting. But he's there just in case. You know, you, you go, it's like, hey, can you uh, help me out with this? You know, and the guy comes over and, how many think you're going to get? Oh, I think I'll get about five reps. So, you know, you're benching it out. And, whoosh, and you get to that fifth one and your arms are shaking. And the guy's like, you need a spot? No, no, I got it. You know, and, you know, the guy was just there just in case, just in case. And we treat God that way. Well, you know, if things really go south, you know, the wheels come off the bus, well, maybe I'll go to God. And, and what God does often is he intentionally brings us to places where the wheels are off the bus. And we don't have any resources left. And we have to trust him. You know, will we trust him as our deliverer or not? And even as Christians, how much more reason do we have to trust God? We have Jesus Christ. I mean, he's the great deliverer. He, he was crucified he was buried he was raised he's sitting at the father's right hand he has conquered the great pharaoh satan he has delivered us from the bondage to sin and death he's gone through death he's come out the other side he's our he's our rescuer and our savior and we need to trust him and be still and look to the lord for our salvation let's go on with the story exodus 14 so the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And then here again is God's purpose. I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So jump down to verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through, on this, through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. And during the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of the chariots come off, so they had difficulty driving. 
And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, but their trust in Him and His Moses, his servant. God won a great victory. God, by his power, did a miracle. You know, what happened at the Red Sea cannot be explained through science or natural phenomena. This wasn't a scientific event. This was one of those times when God says, I am here to bend the rules of physics by my power and intervene supernaturally. And God did something that just could not be explained any other way than by the power of God. And God can rescue us from our trials. We need to trust Him. Maybe you're out there wondering, now what, and maybe there's an objection I'm kind of anticipating, but maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, Pastor, are you saying that if I trust Jesus and I trust God, that, that I will overcome all of my problems and all my challenges? That, that I'll really have victory over everything if I trust Jesus? I mean, like, everything? Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. If not in this life, then when Christ returns. This is what we're promised. Total victory in Christ. Whether now or when Christ comes again, ultimately we face an enemy. There's a final enemy. There's a final Goliath every one of us is moving toward, and that is death. You know, that's the enemy who beats everybody. Except, he, except one man. The Lord Jesus one against death. He went into the Red Sea and parted it and came out the other side alive. And, and so someday we will face death, but even that enemy we have hope of conquering because when Christ returns, He will raise the dead and, and save His children. I mean, so our hope is total. Even death, the last enemy, must be put under Christ's feet. Our hope is the complete victory of God over all evil, all His enemies, even death. And so put your hope in Him, whether it be in this life or the next. As Christians, our view of of reality is not limited to the brief years we have on this earth. As Christians, we have a long-term eternal perspective and we measure reality by God's eternal purposes. So it's a different view, it's a different horizon to which we're looking. So people, have confidence. Stop worrying. Trust God. He is your deliverer. He can rescue you. Okay, Sermon 2. Go back to Hebrews 11. All right, so Hebrews 11, verse 30. This is the second sermon. And same theme. God can deliver us. God can rescue us. We need to trust Him. But, but it's just a little different take. Verse 29, if I could summarize verse 29, I said that by faith God delivers us out of the hands of our enemies. Verse 30 is a little different twist. It's by faith God delivers our enemies into our hands. 
So God not only rescues us out of the hands of our enemies, but he delivers our enemies into our hands. And here we see the story of the battle of Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls come tumbling down. Look at verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. So now we're fast forwarding 40 years after the exodus from Egypt. The Israelites have finally come to the promised land. They're now there to conquer the promised land at God's command. And the first city they come up against is Jericho, a walled city. Let's read this story too. Put a bookmark here in Hebrews. Let's go back to Joshua chapter 6. It's on page 211 in the Pew Bible. Joshua chapter 6. Page 211. So the Israelites are now at the promised land. They're at the city of Jericho. And just as God gave them a funky command to go to the Red Sea and camp, God gives them a funny commandment here. Look at Joshua chapter 6 verse 1. It says, Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. God not only rescues us out of the hands of our enemies, but God rescues, uh, delivers our enemies into our hands. He says, Along with the king and its fighting men. So here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. Like, Okay, God, that's great. Should we build some battering rams? Should we put together some siege towers, maybe some catapults? Maybe we'll get some siege, you know, ramps and, and ladders, and we're going to storm the city? Are we going to go in by night? What's the strategy? Give us the military plan. Okay, here it is, verse 3. Check this out. March around the city once with all the armed men. Okay. Do this for six days. Okay. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark, And on the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. Okay. (laughs) When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpet, have all the people give a loud shout. And then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. So this is our strategy. March around the city. Have a parade. Do you want us to build a float? I mean, what, what, what is this? And then we toot some horns, and all the people say, yay, and then we win. Like, you know, what, what, what army manual does this come from? But again, God is giving the Israelites a strange command so that they will know that God gives the victory. So, so that it's clear that it wasn't by their ingenuity, ingenuity and their stratagems that they're able to sack the city of Jericho. Instead, it's going to be by God's power. God delivers us out of the hands of our enemies, and by His power, He delivers uh, His enemies into our hands. So that's what they do. Uh, Jump down to verse 12. Joshua got up early the next morning. The priest took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to their camp. They did this for six days. Finally, verse 15, on the seventh day, they got up at daybreak, marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. Uh, The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. So look what happens. Jump down to verse 20. The trumpet sounded. The people shouted. 
And at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed so that every man charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing, and the men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Complete eradication of the enemy, total annihilation of the city of Jericho. He delivered the enemies into the hands of God's people. Now, that's kind of a tough passage, I think. I think passages like that are the kinds of things that give people questions about Christianity and about faith. If you were to go ask someone who was maybe not self-identified as a Christian or just maybe someone who had questions, and you were to say, you know, what are some of your doubts about Christianity? One of the common ones that I've heard, maybe it's like in the top five list, is, is this idea that, you know, it's religion that causes so many of the wars and so much violence and so much destruction in the world. And have you ever heard that objection? You know, in fact, this is something that, that atheist uh, apologists use. They say, look, we need a more rational, scientific approach to life because when people leave reason and common sense and they get all religious and fanatical, that's when they suddenly feel authorized to go out and hurt people and kill people. You know, you look at, you look at the history of the world and you see the Inquisition or the Crusades or, you know, the Hundred Years' War. And you, and you see these things, you're like, look at all that, that bloodshed. You think, look at jihad today. And it's all in the name of religion. And whenever people get religious, they, they just go off. And then here you are, Pastor. You're telling your congregation God's going to deliver your enemies into your hands. Like, what, you know, what kind of stuff are we filling our heads with? Uh, doesn't religion and Christianity and, and all kinds of religions sort of promote violence and, and warfare and bloodshed? Well, uh, Boy, there's a lot to say there. That could be a whole book, really. Um, let me just share with you just three quick thoughts. The first is this. I don't think that violence and bloodshed is a religious problem. I think it's a human problem. And I think humans use all kinds of things to justify all kinds of behavior, you know, including religion. Even a religion like Jesus who said, turn the other cheek. Can somehow, people abuse and use all kinds of things. I mean, you know, look at the 20th century, perhaps the bloodiest century in human history to this point. And yet the driving force behind all that bloodshed was not religion. It was actually atheism. You know, you think about Hitler's uh, slaughter of the Jews. It it was driven by a sort of an extreme view of evolution, Darwinian evolution called eugenics, that believed that there were sort of a, a master race that was evolving. But it was driven out of atheism. Or look at Stalin's Russia or uh, Pol Pot in uh, the killing fields in Cambodia. Or even look at America. You know, uh, they estimate there's probably over 40 million humans who've had their life extinguished in the womb before even being born in America. And where does that come from? Is that from religion? No, I mean, that's humanism sort of insisting on the sovereignty of personal choice. So it's a people, this is what people do. This is the human fallen condition. The reason we, we hurt and we harm is because we're sinners, not because we're religious or irreligious. You see it everywhere on all sides. So I just think it's kind of a bogus argument. It's sort of a, a selective reading of history. But another thought I, I, would, I would put before you is that what we see here in this particular instance in Joshua is not a blanket command that all of God's followers can put to the sword anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus. This is not a blanket command. It was a specific command at a specific moment in history where God 
was meeting out his judgment on the Canaanites. And rather than using the Red Sea or, you know, a flood or something else, he used the Israelites to do it. It was a specific command. You know, I wish I had time to show you all this, but, but clearly God had had it with the Canaanites. You know, they practiced child sacrifice. They, um, they practiced cult prostitution. I mean, they're just a really depraved people. And God, in his timing, not ours, finally said, you know, I, I've had it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end the Canaanites. So, and God has authority to do that. But it's not a blanket command. It's not like jihad, where it's like, hey, anyone who doesn't believe is an infidel and you can put them to the sword. It's not that. It was a specific instance and a specific story in God's working out of his plan. The third thing I would say is when you look at the New Testament, clearly the emphasis is on the militancy of the New Testament is on preaching the gospel, not upon using force. You know, when you look at the New Testament, Jesus commands his followers to go into the world, but not with force or not with arms. Christians are not authorized to use force to bring people to Jesus. It's nowhere in the New Testament. We're called to preach the gospel. You know, Jesus said to his followers in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Which is, you know, if you think about that, that's a pretty militant statement for Jesus to say, I have all authority, and so I'm commanding you, my followers, make disciples of all nations. I mean, that could sound like it's going in the direction of violence. But then what does he say? How do we make disciples? He says, by baptizing them, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So the Christians, we have a weapon, but this is it right here. We teach. We tell people about God. If they don't want to listen, they don't have to listen. But this is how God's kingdom is advancing, through the humble proclamation of the gospel around the world today. And it is advancing. And people are being delivered into the hands of God by being saved through the gospel message. In fact, I would even go so far to say is that what Christ has commanded is not just to preach the gospel, but to suffer for the gospel. So it's not shedding blood to convert, it's having your own blood shed to convert. And the blood of the martyrs, is, as often been said, truly is the seed of the church. And so our, the, the way we, we hope to see people delivered into God's hands today is, is through coming to faith in Christ in the gospel before Christ returns. This is our message and our method. And, and it's a very, from the world's perspective, powerless. I mean, I'm just standing here talking to you, you know. Think about how wimpy this is. This is like, this is the whole thing. This is our whole strategy. People talking about the Bible. Like, ooh, you know, it's like, you can walk, if you don't like it, you can walk out. I mean, it's, it's that simple. And yet God's kingdom is powerfully advancing through the foolishness of his word being preached. This is how God's kingdom is advancing. I was talking to a guy on, uh, up in, the North, uh, in, in North Quincy. He's actually in Squantum. You guys know where Squantum is? It's like part of Quincy. It's, it's kind of like a little peninsula. It's sort of its own little Quincy, and it's over there kind of on its own. And this guy just has a heart for Squantum, so he started a church. He's got this church going there, and, uh, and we meet sometimes, and we just talk and encourage each other. And he was telling me, he said, you know, I just want to be faithful to God. And this is, this is his vision. He goes, someday when God moves powerfully in New England so that many people are saved. He goes, I just want to be the faithful guy so that my sons will lead those churches. And I was like, wow, you have faith. I mean, that's faith in the power of God. They're like, someday another generation is going to do it because of my faithfulness in this generation. That's confidence in the authority of God. 
that God will deliver His enemies into our hands. God will deliver us from our enemies. God will deliver our enemies to us through the preaching of the Gospel. And that really leads to my third point. If you're going back to Hebrews 11, and this is the third sermonette, and I'll be quick with this one. And here's the third point. God can deliver you from your sins. God can deliver us from our enemies. God can deliver our enemies to us. And God can deliver you if you will trust in Christ. That's the third point. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 31. It says, By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So what's this? Some prostitute? Woo! This just got rich. Look at that. Some woman named Rahab, some woman of ill repute, and now she's suddenly in the story and she's an example of faith. Like, what? (laughs) Where did this go? Uh, Well, it's actually part of the Joshua story. Quickly, look back at Joshua chapter 6, where we just left off. Joshua chapter 6, back on page 211. Look at verse 22. Let me just pick up the story where we left off. So they marched around Jericho, blew the trumpet, walls came down, people went in, victory, everyone's killed except Rahab, the prostitute. Look at verse 22. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who are with her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and her mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought her entire fam- out her entire family and put them in the place outside the camp of Israel. Look at verse 25. Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. What happened there? Okay, quickly, go back to Joshua 2. Go back four chapters. Here's that story. It's real quick. So this is back a few days. The Israelites, before they go around Jericho seven times, Joshua gets there. He's like, we need spies. We need some intel. We need information. So he sends these two spies into Jericho. Joshua 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, uh, the men came to me, but I did not know where they come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers were gone, the gate was shut. Now before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. And they heard about that. 
For when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed, we've heard how God's been with you. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. In other words, she's like, look, guys, I realize I'm on the wrong side of this equation. I realize that you're coming, that God is with you, and I'm in the wrong side. It is dawning on me that I am in big trouble with God because of the side I'm on. Has it ever dawned upon you that you might be on the wrong side of the equation with God? What do you do when you find yourself on the wrong side of the equation? The answer is, by faith, you cry out to God to deliver you. So that's what she does. Look, second half of verse 11. She says, For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. She didn't just say, yeah, I'm scared of you. She's like, your God is the true God. She came to a place of confessing her faith. She's no longer putting, believing in the Canaanite deities. She's saying, God, your God is the true God. So she confesses her faith in God and she says, now please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you'll spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you'll save us from death. So by her faith, she cries out for a rescue. God not only delivers us from our enemies, He not only delivers our enemies to us, but He can deliver you if you'll put your faith in Christ. The problem is we are sinners, that we're on the wrong side of God as sinners, that we need to be brought to a place of forgiveness and mercy. And the amazing story of the Bible is that God sent His own Son, Jesus, to take our place, to to pay our penalty, so that no matter who we are, no matter what our baggage is, and even if you're Rahab the prostitute, Jesus died to save Rahab's. He can save a Rahab. You know, of all the people in Cana to be rescued, Rahab? I mean, really, if you're going to pick one person in Cana, the prostitute? I mean, come on. But she's the one who had faith. She's the one who cried out. We're saved by faith, not by works, not by trying to be a good person. We're saved by faith in Christ. That story of Rahab being saved, it reminded me of the story in the New Testament when Jesus is hanging on the cross and there's a thief on one side and a thief on the other side. And the thief on one side is just mocking Jesus. Ah, ha, ha, you're the Savior. Why are you on the cross? Ah, ha. And the other thief says, stop mocking him. Don't you realize that we're here on these crosses because we're thieves, we've done wrong, but he did nothing wrong. And then he looks at Jesus and like Rahab says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know, save me. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. You think about that thief. At that point in his life, there is nothing he could do to make up for his life. He's on a cross. He can't come down and make amends. He can't come down and start a 12-step program. He can't come down and try to spiff up his life. He's on a cross. He's about to die. But by faith in Christ, Jesus says, I've come to save people like you. And if He could save Rahab, and if He could save the thief on the cross who simply put their faith in Him, He can save us as well. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, there are some here this morning who need deliverance from enemies and oppressions. And they are tired and they are scared. And Lord, I pray that this morning they would have renewed faith to trust you as their deliverer. Lord, there are some here who are trying to share the gospel of Jesus with their loved ones, their family, their siblings, their spouses, people at work. And they just feel like it'll never happen. It's like the walls of Jericho are up. But Lord, I just pray that you would give them confidence that you have the power through the Holy Spirit to bring down the walls of people's hearts and that people can be won over at Christ. That Lord, all those for whom you died will be saved. And Jesus, I pray finally for those who are on the wrong side of the equation. I pray first of all that you would give them wisdom to realize that their place of disbelief and and sin is the wrong place to be. And I pray that they would see Jesus, they would see you as the Savior whose arms are open to receive those who come to him. And so, Lord, may they call out to you by faith like Rahab did and like that thief did. Lord Jesus, we praise you because you are the rescuer, the king. You are our hero and our champion.